The text for this afternoon is 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. We'll read those verses together again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to these verses as they'll be referenced throughout the sermon this afternoon. <coughs> Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this year our council has chosen sharing our faith as a theme for all of our visits within the congregation. Closely tied with sharing our faith is living our faith every day. Living your faith every day. This afternoon we will focus in particular on the question, how do you live your faith every day? I'm assuming everyone will here will agree with me that it is a good thing to live out your faith, that it's important for your faith to permeate your daily life. But how does this happen? Well, Peter answers our question in the opening verses of his second letter. And so this afternoon, I proclaim to you the gospel under this theme, and we'll see that Peter answers our question, how, in three ways. So, live your faith every day, first by the power of Christ, second by knowing Christ, and third by being one with Christ. Peter starts out in verse 3, after his greetings, exactly where we want to be with our theme, life and godliness. Isn't that what we want with living our faith every day? For there to be a perfect overlap between our lives and godliness? Well then, this is a pretty good place to start. Because Peter gives us the secret here to all things that pertain to life and godliness. That is, Peter says, do you want to live a godly life? Well, let me tell you how it works. The divine power of, our, of Jesus our Lord has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Allow me to unpack that, and let me start where Peter does. In the Greek, the first important word he says is all things, everything, not some, not many, all. That's an incredibly humbling and an incredibly encouraging place to, st to start. Where are you going to get the resources for a life of godliness, for a life of faith? You're going to get 0% of it from yourself. You want to rely on your own gifts and talents to live out your faith? You'll fail. You'll just put in as much effort as possible yourself, you'll fail. That's humbling. But it's also incredibly encouraging and liberating because it means that we actually have all the resources we need to live godly lives. No matter who you are, pastor, elder, new Christian, born and raised in the church. That's clear from what Peter says. He says his divine power has granted us all things. Do you notice the tense there? Has granted. It's in the past. It's a completed action. What does that mean? 
Well, it means that you can't change it or cancel it out. It's already happened. You can't change the past. It's a fact. And so Peter is saying that what you need to live your faith every day is not something you have to wait for or that might be coming in the future. It's accessible already now in the present. So how exactly are you going to live a godly life? I've skipped the most important part. It's by the divine power of Christ. Let that sink in for a second. Peter says here, are you struggling in your walk of faith? Are you frustrated with your lack of growth? Do you want to be more alive in your faith? You already have everything you need in Christ. Here, Peter reminds us that the Spirit of Christ has been poured out on the church, on all those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. The divine power that Christ has granted us in the person of the Holy Spirit who enables us to live lives of faith. Now, let me remind you what the Spirit of God can do in ordinary people. As a family, we've been reading through the book of Judges. It's one of my favorite books. What I'm thinking of right now are those moments in Judges where the Spirit really shows up. I'm sure the kids here know them well. Do you remember what happened that day? Samson was on his way to see his girlfriend in Timnah. He's walking through the vineyards alone. His mom and dad must be up ahead of him. Suddenly, a lion comes roaring at him. It should have been the end of Samson. No more judge. Instead, Samson rips the lion apart with his bare hands. How did he do that? Because he was a bodybuilder? Because he was just naturally strong? Partly, I'm sure he was ripped. But the Bible tells us the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. The same happened when his wife gave away his riddle. The same happened when his fellow Israelites gave him up to the Philistines. It wasn't about Samson. It was about the Spirit of the Lord working through Samson. The Spirit of the Lord gave him the strength to rip a lion apart with his bare hands. This divine power is available to us. The same Spirit of God is given to all believers. It's the Spirit of God in us who helps us fight un ungodliness and live godly lives. So ask God for the Spirit to work in you more powerfully. Listen to Jesus. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So ask Him. But what kinds of things does He grant us? Personally speaking, the Spirit has never empowered me to rip apart any lions, and I'm fairly confident the same is true for you. Instead, Peter says, the power He gives you is everything that pertains to life and godliness. Well, now we're talking, because that's what we're interested in today, living our faith every day. How are we going to do that? Through the Spirit's power working in us. But Peter doesn't leave it there, because the Spirit works in certain ways. The divine power is granted to us in a certain way. 
Peter says we've been granted these things through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the main theme of this second letter of Peter. He wants us to grow in our knowledge of Christ. That's how the Spirit will work in us more and more deeply. Our spiritual growth, our ability to live our faith every day is directly dependent on knowing Christ. So, how do you do that? How do you know Christ? Well, first of all, if we look at our text, Christ takes the initiative. Christ is the one who called us to his own glory and excellence. To know Christ, you have to be called. Peter is speaking here, first of all, about the moment of conversion, when the Spirit of God causes us to be born again. That's when Christ reaches into our hearts and turns the light on, you could say. That's his effectual call. That's what happens when the gospel is preached and you accept the gospel in your heart. It's not a human response. It's nothing we do of ourselves. It's the work of the Spirit. This rebirth, this making what was dead alive, is necessary for life and godliness. That's what Peter is saying here. There's no real life, no godliness either, outside of the miracle that the Spirit does in our hearts when he works faith. When Christ has called you, at whatever point that may have happened, you begin to live, really live, for the very first time. That doesn't mean you, have, you can be fatalistic about living your faith as though it's something out of your control. Either the Spirit's going to do it or not, because that's not the only way Christ calls. It's, just, it's not just something that happens internally, miraculously by the Spirit, it's also the, something that happens externally in ordinary ways. Think of the disciples. Peter and Andrew are fishing on the sea of Galilee and Jesus walks their way and calls out to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they leave their nets and follow him. While Christ's effectual call to our hearts, our conversion, is a one-time thing, Christ continues to call us throughout our life of faith. To each of us, Christ has called out, follow me. And he continues to call us to walk in his footsteps as his disciples, just like Peter and Andrew, the fishermen, and Levi the tax collector, and all the others who walked with Jesus around the Sea of Galilee and in the hills of Judea. It reminds me of the story of the Pied Piper. Do you know it? The city of Hamlin was infested by rats, and the people didn't know what to do. Finally, a man came forward and saved the day. It was the Pied Piper. It turned out that when he played his pipe, the rats all fell in step behind him. So he played away, and the rats followed him to their doom since he led them into the river. Okay, that's not a pleasant picture, but later on in the story, the Pied Piper does the same with the children of the town. He plays away on his pipe, and they all fall in step behind him. The life of faith is walking in the footsteps of Jesus. He calls out, follow me, and you fall in step behind him, joining the crowd of disciples. But you're not going to fall in step behind him unless you think he's worth following. Unless you're convinced that Jesus is someone to give up everything for, to leave behind your nets and your fishing boat for, you're not going to answer his call to lead a life of faith by following him. 
And so Peter says he calls us to his own glory and excellence. That is, Jesus calls us to see in him someone of such worth, such value, that you'd follow him everywhere. Jesus calls us to be so overwhelmed by his glory and his excellence, his majesty and his goodness, that it's as though we're being led around by a magic flute. Like those children who followed the Pied Piper, we just can't do anything else. We're entranced by this glorious Son of God who gave up all of his glory for our sake so that he could free us from our sin and misery. We're captivated by this wise teacher who shows us another way to live, a life of sacrificial love and service. But there's a second aspect to this calling to Christ's glory and excellence. Following in his footsteps mean we pursue his glory and his excellence too. First of all, his own glory. We're not like the rats ending up in the river. Christ calls us to share in his glory. He sits enthroned at God's right hand with all power and dominion under his feet. And he wants his disciples to share in that glory. And so the call, follow me, is a glorious one. But I want to focus on the second aspect because that's what Peter focuses on. It's called, it's a call to excellence. The word has to do especially with character, with virtue. It's the same word the ESV translates as virtue in verse 5. And so, follow me isn't just a call to make it to the same destination, but also to walk in the same way. It's more like follow the, follow the leader. You know, where you have to imitate everything that the leader does. When the leader jumps, you jump. When the leader waves his arms, you wave your arms. Well, when Christ calls you to live a life of faith, he calls you to follow his lead, also in terms of his excellence. But how do you do that? Well, obviously, to follow the leader effectively, you have to see him clearly. Otherwise, how will you know who to follow? We can use a little exercise this afternoon to illustrate this using your imagination. If I hold up some fingers on my hand here, where you can all see it, you won't find it difficult to follow my lead. Assuming your eyesight is good enough, we could play a little game of follow the leader, no problem. But if I put my hand behind the pulpit and then ask you to hold up just as many fingers as I'm holding up, things get a little more complicated, don't they? In fact, we can't play follow the leader anymore. If you can't see what I'm doing, you can't do what I'm doing, can you? The same goes for following Jesus. If he calls follow me and we want to follow his lead, we're going to have to keep looking at him. That's why the call is connected here with knowledge. If you're called to Christ's glory and excellence, and if you want his divine power to live in you, you're going to have to know him. So how do you come to know Christ more and more? How do you come to know Christ better and better? Through his word. I know, this is old news. The pastor is telling me I need to read the Bible more? What a surprise. But I mean it, and you know it. You see, often we emphasize living your faith in such a way that it means getting out and doing something in the church community, in the church, or in the community. The problem is that we're already doing lots of things. Our lives are crazy busy. 
And they might all be very good things and very important things, but when they get put together in a single schedule, they're too much. And the first thing to go, generally speaking, is your time for personal devotions or family devotions. That's the reality. There's only so much time in your day. And so when you add something to your schedule, something else has got to give. And what's it going to be? Often, it's that incredibly important relationship-building exercise of meeting Christ in His Word. If you don't see Him, you can't follow Him. If you don't meet Him in the shadows of the Old Testament, if you don't meet Him on the streets of Jerusalem, if you don't meet Him in the preaching of the apostles or their letters, you won't know Him. Do you want to live your faith every day? Meet Christ often in His Word and talk to Him often in prayer. As we do this, as we come to know Christ better, as we follow in His footsteps, we also enjoy the reality of Christ's precious and very great promises. Here, Peter has one promise in mind, and it's definitely precious and very great. He says that believers become partakers of the divine nature. We share in the divine nature. That brings it all together, because what Peter is saying here is that it's all about being one with Christ. It's all about our union with Christ. Now, on the one hand, that's a completed fact. Every believer is united with Christ. We are already one with Christ. As believers, we have His perfect obedience. We have forgiveness of sins. We are righteous before God. That's a reality already. But it's also true that we enjoy this reality more and more as we mature in faith, as we grow in godliness. In some ways, it's like a marriage. It's on the wedding day, once the vows are made and the papers are signed, that bride and groom become husband and wife. It's then that the two become one flesh. But that reality is enjoyed more and more as the years go by. You could say that husband and wife become one flesh more and more. Your interests overlap more and more. You start finishing each other's sentences. You can tell what your spouse is thinking. Some of you even end up looking like each other. The same is true of our being one with Christ. It's an objective reality as someone is born again. It's a done deal. But at the same time, it becomes a reality over the course of a believer's life. That means that living a life of faith is all about experiencing more and more the power of Christ living in us. It's about becoming more and more Christ-like. It's about looking more and more like Him. That's how we escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Our deepest passions, our deepest desires begin to be defined less and less by the sin that still clings to us and more and more by the Spirit who lives in us. But maybe you want me to be more practical. What does it mean to live your faith? Let's turn quickly to where Peter himself gets practical in verses 5 to 7. I want to start by pointing out what he doesn't do when he encourages us in our life of faith. He doesn't say, listen, you need to prioritize your life like this. You need to spend X amount of time at Bible study. You need to spend X amount of time serving in your church community. 
you need to spend X amount of time serving in your broader community. Instead, he talks about your character, virtue, self-control, godliness, steadfastness, love. You see, living your faith is definitely about what you do, but it's also about how you do it. Again, it's about being Christ-like. And that's a much more difficult thing, isn't it? Because it forces us to look into our hearts and it forces us to think about not just the things we do that we're sure are good things to do as Christians, but also the regular, ordinary things, like your behavior at the dinner table, or your attitude at your job or school, or the way you participate in worship, or your interactions with your kids, or your husband, your wife, or your coworkers. It's the ordinary moments that make up your days, and those are the times to live like you're one with Christ. Actually, those are the places and times when nobody else is around that will show whether or not we've really been transformed. They'll show us if we're really living out our faith or are just busy adding good things to our schedule. And so the desire to live out your faith every day, which is great to have, should ultimately be a desire to show the fruits of the Spirit. It should be a desire to have that divine power work so powerfully on you that you've changed from the inside out. Because ultimately, that's where it's going to come from, from the Spirit's work in your heart. Through partaking more and more in the divine nature, becoming one with Christ, and the most wonderful reality, the good news, is that it's all available to you already, free of charge. Amen.